Romans chapter 13, verse 8 to 14. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, instead, close yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to be life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against the sin. There? That's on. <laughs> Athletic competition has an appeal that's almost universal. There's something about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat that fascinates us. 
Even those of us who are not very athletic felt a great surge of pride in our country when 20 years ago, if we could remember that far back, Donovan Bailey became the fastest human being on earth. And who can forget Rosie McClellan last, year, last Olympics winning gold in a trampoline? There's something about sport that captures our attention. And I dare say that many of us are going to spend much more time watching television in the next two weeks than we should. Picking up on that Olympics theme, Pastor Ken introduced a new series of sermons last week, The Road to Real. And this is a series of sermons based on the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 12. That begins, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Last week, Pastor Ken introduced this series by focusing on the cloud of witnesses mentioned in verse 1 here. And he reminded us that that calls our attention back to the previous chapter, chapter 11, where our author describes a number of the saints of the past, those whose stories we read of in the Old Testament, the men and women of faith like Enoch, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, those who lived and died in faith and have provided us with examples to follow, models for us to imitate. This morning, we move on to the second clause in that opening verse. And there we read, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And here we learn that there are things in our lives that can prevent us from making the kind of progress that we want to make in our Christian lives. Things that could slow us down, things that can trip us up, cause us to stumble and fall. So our theme this morning is real hindrances. But before we look at the hindrances themselves, let us first notice that we are in a real race. Have you ever been in a lazy river? It's been a long time since I went there, but there is one in the water park at West Edmonton Mall. And typically in a lazy river, there's an inner tube that you sit on and you float. And the current of the river simply carries you along. It requires no expenditure of energy at all. You are completely passive and the current carries you along. That is never the picture we're given of the Christian life in the New Testament. If anything, 
Christians are to avoid being carried along by the trends of society, by the principles, the mores of the world in which we live. The biblical metaphor is the metaphor of the race, reminding us that we have a goal, a distinctive goal towards which we're striving, and that we need to exert every ounce of energy to reach that goal. We're far from passive. We're very much involved in this great race. Now, to be sure, we are not racing against one another. The picture is not that we're trying to outrun the person who is standing beside us. The picture rather is that we want to get to the goal and come to that point where we can say, along with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The writers of the New Testament actually use a number of figures of speech to describe the Christian life. Race is one of them. A fight is another. And both of those images are brought together in that text in, first, in 2 Timothy. They are also brought together in this longer passage in 1 Corinthians 9. Let me read it for you. Here Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Clearly, Paul did not see the Christian life as a lazy river experience. He saw the Christian life as an experience where he was going to be fully engaged, that was going to require all of his strength, all of his stamina, all of his energy. The hymn writer Isaac Watts captured something of this in his hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? When he asked this question, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? Well, others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. We must never lose sight of the fact that we are involved in a real race that requires all of our energy. But we are facing real hindrances, hindrances that must be discarded. Those who compete in the Olympic Games typically wear clothing that will allow them to have the greatest freedom of movement possible. Usually they're only wearing the minimum that modesty requires. They don't want their performance to be hindered by anything that they're wearing. They don't want to be tripped up with their clothing. Now, you'll remember that in the first century, the typical clothing that people wore consisted of rather long gown-like things that were hardly suited to running, would not be suitable for athletic competition. 
In the ancient world, only men competed in the games. Women did not compete in the early Olympics. And men competed naked. They stripped everything off before they were going to compete. They wanted to make sure that nothing was going to hinder them. And our author picks up on that and says, and we too must be careful that we get rid of anything that might impede our progress. Throw off, he says, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You want to win, you've got to get rid of those things that might prevent that from happening. Every athlete wants to win. And I think it's also true to say that every Christian wants to win as well. Every Christian wants to serve his or her Lord faithfully, want to come to the end of our finish line and hear God's words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But there are things that can keep us from achieving what we want to achieve, that can keep us from that goal. They're described here as things that hinder and sin that easily entangles. Sin can be defined as a transgression of the law of God, the breaking of one of God's commandments. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So sin by its very nature is an offense to God. It's a departure from what God's will for our lives is. But I also want you to notice here that sin is also contrary to our best interests as well. It's also a violation of what we really desire in our heart of hearts, namely to be like Christ, to bring honor to our Heavenly Father. Sin is not what brings us ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction. It prevents us from enjoying those things. The devil, of course, wants us to believe otherwise, that sin offers us something attractive, something desirable, something good, something that will give us satisfaction, something that will give us enjoyment. But the devil is a liar. Remember the story of Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3. God warned Adam that they were not to touch that forbidden fruit because if they did so, it would lead to death. Then the serpent came along and said, if you eat that fruit, you will not surely die. If you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will know the difference between good and evil. You will be like God. This is a good thing. This is to be desired. The results of eating this fruit are good. And Eve was confronted with a choice. Basically, it's a choice. Who do you believe? Do you believe what God says? Or do you believe what the devil says? The devil says, eat the fruit and it will lead to enlightenment. 
It will lead to fulfillment. It will lead to pleasure. And so she looked at the fruit, and it looked like it might do that. And so she took the fruit. And the rest is history. She thought it would offer her a fuller life. She discovered that it proved what Paul would later say when Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. The tempter can make evil look very appealing, make it look like it will satisfy us. But the devil's a liar and the father of lies. He speaks only deception. So our author tells us that we need to get rid of sin because that hinders us, that can easily entangle us. What kinds of sins might he have had in mind? Well, actually, there are several places in Scripture where we have exhortations to get rid of sins, to take sins off like pieces of clothing would be taken off. And they use the very same word that we find here in Hebrews 12. One of those passages is the passage that Evan read for us a few moments ago from Romans chapter 13. Another is Colossians 3.8 where Paul writes, But you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger. Rage. Malice. Slander. And filthy language from your lips. Peter also gives us a list like this in 1 Peter 2.1. And he says, therefore, rid yourselves. Take these off like articles of clothing. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. These are all things that will hinder you in your race as you're involved in this great race of faith. They can hold you back. They can trip you up. They can cause you to stumble and fall. But these lists just give us examples. These are are samples of some of the kinds of things that can inhibit our progress. Perhaps the best comprehensive list that kind of covers the entire waterfront of all those things that can be hindrances in our lives is a list that goes back for about 1,500 years. It's a list called the Seven Deadly Sins. Seven Deadly Sins. And they are pride, greed, lust, wrath, gluttony, envy, and sloth. And I expect that every one of us has had firsthand experience of every one of those sins. Those are things that we can identify with. Those are things that have characterized us at one time or another in our lives. And if you don't think that's the case, check number one. You violated that one for sure. The question, of course, is, which are the ones that are causing us the greatest trouble now? Which are the things that are tripping us up now. And those are the things that we need to focus on because we are facing real hindrances and we need to recognize what those hindrances are. But we need to go far beyond identifying them. 
We need to go on to get rid of them, to deal with them, to throw them off, to discard them, to strip them away from our lives. If there's one thing that characterizes athletes, it's discipline. You don't get to be successful as an athlete without discipline. You watch your diet, you eat carefully, you do your workouts regularly, you attend your practices regularly. If you want to win, you know you've got to discipline yourself. Magic Johnson once said, with few exceptions, the best players are the hardest workers. Talent isn't enough. It requires hard work. The same discipline that athletes impose upon themselves, we as Christians need to impose upon ourselves as well. We need to consciously and deliberately root out from our lives those things that will hinder our progress. As we saw last week, Hebrews chapter 11 describes how many of the saints of the past have lived the life of faith and the ways in which they exhibited their faithfulness and perseverance. One of the individuals mentioned there is Moses. And Moses was one who confronted a very intentional decision to turn away from a life of pleasure and to choose a life of obedience. We read of this in Hebrews 11:24 and following. There our author writes, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. You remember the story of Moses. You remember how he was born at a time when the Israelites were prisoners in the land of Egypt. They were being abused by the Pharaoh and the others in the land of Egypt. And the Pharaoh was so concerned about the way the Israelite community was growing that he enacted a law that all male children were to be put to death. Moses was born, and Moses' mother demonstrated amazing faith by making a little basket and tarring it and putting the baby in that and then putting that in the Nile River. It so happened that the daughter of the Pharaoh was coming to the Nile River and saw this ark in the bulrushes and realizing that this was an Israelite baby that should have been put to death, adopted him. She took him into her family. Years later, Moses became an adult. And then he had to make a choice. He knew he was an Israelite. He knew that these people who were being so badly oppressed were his people. But he was a daughter of the Pharaoh's, he was a son of the Pharaoh's daughter. He lived in the royal palace. And the choice was 
Would he identify with his own people or would he identify with the family that had taken him in and enjoy all the perks that went with being in the palace? What to do? Should he choose to identify with his own people and face whatever suffering that might entail because they were being severely persecuted? Or would he choose to exercise his rights as a member of the royal family and enjoy all the privileges of being royalty? The author of Hebrews tells of his decision in verses 24 and 25 when he tells us that Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Or to use the language of Hebrews 12.1, Moses was prepared to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that could so easily have entangled him. And of course, the question that the story raises for us is, are we prepared to do the same? Are we prepared to give up the fleeting pleasures of sin, to be obedient to our Lord? Of course, no one runs the race of faith without stumbling. We all get tripped up. Those sins are ever-present. The temptations are always with us. And we all fail. There are times when we make mistakes. There are times when we fall into sin. But as we read in Hebrews 2.18, Jesus also suffered when he was tempted, and therefore he is able to help those who are being tempted. We have in our Lord someone who knows exactly what it is like to struggle to live a life of obedience in a sin-cursed world where we're surrounded by temptations of various kinds. He knows what that's like because he was tempted in every way just as we are. So when we do stumble and fall, We come to one who understands our situation, someone who will be sympathetic when we confess our sins, someone who is full of mercy and compassion, but also one who wants to spare us the pain that sin brings in its wake. So someone who not only offers forgiveness, but also offers us grace to strengthen us so that we will not continue to stumble and fall for the same reasons. There's no virtue in pretending that we lead sinless lives, that we never stumble, we never slip up. It's better to acknowledge our lapses It's better to seek forgiveness for our sins. And not only forgiveness, but also to to seek the strength that enables us 
to do better next time. When I first began to teach at Taylor many years ago, Joe Sonnenberg was the president of the school, and I remember an experience that he shared with the faculty one day. He had given an assignment to a group of students in which he asked them to write out their prayers. And then he read through the prayers that the students had prepared. And one of the things that he observed as he read through those prayers was what wasn't there, what was absent. And that was prayers of confession. That when the students listed their prayers, they did not include the confession of sin. Which, if you think about it, is rather odd when you remember that our Lord himself, in giving us the model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, urged us to pray for forgiveness for our transgressions. But that wasn't included. Why? Is it because they didn't think they needed forgiveness? Is it because they were embarrassed by the sins that they had committed? Is it because they were afraid that God might not forgive them for their sins? Was it because they simply didn't take their sins seriously enough to think that they needed to pray about them? I don't know. But whatever the reason, Scripture urges us to confess our sins. Asking for God's pardon is something that has strong biblical warrant. And so as we conclude this morning, I want us to do that together to confess our sins, and to ask for God's grace. And in doing that, I want to use a prayer that will be very familiar to some of you, perhaps not to many others. It's called the Prayer of General Confession, and it's found in the Book of Common Prayer used in Anglican churches. But it's one of the most beautiful prayers of confession that I know that brings together so many biblical images and ideas and expresses them in a very thoughtful manner. In an Anglican service, typically when it comes to the prayer of general confession, the priest will read a line and then the congregation will respond by repeating that line. And they go through the prayer line by line. I'm going to suggest that we do something different this morning. I want us to pray this prayer together, in unison, to pray it aloud, to pray it thoughtfully, and of course, to pray it prayerfully. So please stand together with me. The words appear on the screens. We'll pray the prayer together, and then please remain standing after the prayer as the worship team comes to lead us in our next song. So let's pray together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have wandered and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done, and we have done those things that we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us sinners. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent 
according to your promises declared to mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a disciplined, righteous, and godly life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Amen.